Hello, I'm Alec Wilkinson and this is episode 17 of Sailing Uncovered. Welcome to all our new listeners that came to meet us at the London Boat Show. I hope you enjoyed the stage shows and I promise some pretty special podcasts too over the coming months for you. So, coming up in this edition, Mr Golden Globe. Yes, we're joined by the author of A Race Too Far to discuss the epic round-the-world race that 50 years ago created legends but also destroyed lives and the race is being rerun in the summer of 2018 wise or insane we'll discuss that also a three times world champion tells us why he loves his boat in our regular monthly feature but first picture this every morning you wake up and wonder if you'll have the energy to even get out of bed and it's not something a strong coffee can sort out for you either but you don't stay in bed you get up You go training on the water and then you take your battered body on an endless tour of specialist doctors and hospitals who prod you and test you to try to find a cure for whatever it is that's draining you of your energy. Now that is the life of Argentinian Santiago Langer, Olympic champion in the NACRA 17 in Rio at the age of 54. But then Langer knows all about the constant grind of battling illness. He beat cancer a few years ago and then went on to take gold at the Games. Now, that story's been told many times. But what many don't realise is that the cancer was only discovered during medical tests to try to solve a different illness. The energy-sapping illness that I've just described. It's a mystery illness that has all the best doctors completely stumped. Langer, of course, being Langer, with his unbeatable spirit, is campaigning to defend his Olympic title in Tokyo. But to do so, he's got some major obstacles to overcome, as well as the illness. The class of boat that he won gold in has been completely changed and upgraded. The NACRA 17 class will be the first foiling boat to be raced at the Olympics. It's faster, more skittish, harder to handle, and let's face it, yes, it's more dangerous. None of this has done anything to curb Langer's enthusiasm. And I caught up with him in Miami recently. And honestly, if you're having a bad day, listen to this interview and let his positivity just seep through the speakers. We are just learning to sail a new boat. You know, the foiling boat is a new boat and we are just learning. And it's good to come to the regattas and and see what the other people have come up with and try to learn as much as possible. Our goal is to try to get to Denmark for the World Cup, for the World's in good shape to try to qualify Argentina for the Olympics. Are you looking as far ahead as Tokyo 2020? Yes, uh, as a team our full and main focus is Tokyo 2020. Is, uh, you know, I, that's my dream and I, th- I think it's his dream as well to get there and, and uh, all, all in all the rest is, doesn't, is not our main goal. Our main goal is just to arrive in shape and I have to be very careful how we, we've set our objectives so we are sure we get in, in, in good shape to Tokyo. And how is your health right now? Uh, my health is uh, with, regarding the, the cancer is all good, it's all clean. I have to do my, my checks every now and then. Uh, but, but I am dealing still with, uh, with some illness I got that I don't know exactly what it is and it's get, get me my body out of energy and I am do, doing all my best to get it and actually being sailing is always good. It makes me, you know, put my mind into the sailing and, and give me a lot of energy which is really nice so I have a good motivation through that and but I have to still looking after the other thing to try to solve it so we have good energy to get perform better. 
it must be quite exhausting to be on this constant search for health. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is really exhausting. Actually, I am, I am struggling a lot more with the, this problem than with the cancer itself. You know, <laughs> probably the word cancer is a big one, but uh, this is, uh, is, is, is no name for it because no one knows what I have, and, but it's, it's a hard, it's hard, but... But it teaches you and, and <laughs> it makes you stronger. Anything you like that, it makes you stronger and makes you value what you really enjoy. And, you know, it's so clear for me to be that I enjoy being here. So I enjoy every day I'm in the water and, and try to focus on that. And so at the end of the day, it's always a good lesson. So I'm interested by your, your motivation um, with the sailing, with, the, with the, this sort of virus that you don't know what it is and, and exhausts you you find that going sailing uh, kind of turns that around and turns you into a, a new healthy man. <laughs> of course, of course, yes. Yes, yes the, the more I sail, the more I have clear that it's part of my life and I want to keep enjoying it. And, and, and it's incredible. Sometimes I jump into the boat with very little energy and, and the adrenaline and the will to win and the will to perform uh, uh, gets me so much that I forget that I am tired even, you know. So, so it's... it's it's a good time in the day when I feel like, like I have the energy to do what I do and, and I, I really, you know, it's, it's, it's a proof that I enjoy being on a boat. It's interesting because, um, you know, the NACRA is a new boat, it's a foiling boat. And you could have just said, well, I've, I've won the Olympics in the old boat, why do I have to change, why do I have to move on, I'll just uh, hang up my hat and, and that's it. But, <laughs> but you, you're inspired to the new challenge. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's the same reason why, what, why for example, that they have put Dick Smith's catamaran before we, or, you know, we, I was not anymore selling Olympic classes. I was retired from Olympic classes. And, and the fact that there was a catamaran and with a, with a mixed discipline was something was new. And was, when I look back, even if at the beginning I was against it, I must, I must be honest as well. Uh, um, it was a big challenge and the challenge uh, motivate and, and it's, it's fascinating to, to learn something new and now again, you know, uh, the, the, to learn this uh, difficult foiling boat, the tactics are different, the, the way we sail the boat, the way the things that we need to focus are changing and it's, it's nice, it's, it's, it's bloody nice to, to learn something new and even if, I think that's a privilege of our sport that that uh, you know you have new things it's not like a tennis player he always have done exactly the same in, and we have the challenge to change to a different sailboat or to change to a different discipline or whatever and and that's motivation because you have to learn something totally new and i, I think uh, i feel as well that's one of the biggest motivation i have uh, what 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 do you enjoy most and, and what do you find the most difficult with the, the new foils i enjoy the most the feeling of flying uh, when we fly downwind, yeah, it's totally beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's so sensitive. The whole boat became so sensitive that you have to be such in advance to the change of conditions that it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And the sensation of just flying is, is, is undescribable. It's so cool. Uh, so that's what I enjoy the most. And then, then I enjoy the learning of a new style. Uh, and then obviously when you always stick to what you liked before, you know, like I think the tactics in the catamarans when, when downwind were really cool because the boats get so split and the leverage of one side or another one so was so big, so tactically it was a big game. Now with the foiling we go so straight and the run downwind is so short that we lost that. Obviously there are advantages and disadvantages. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, to learn something new and to discover how we should sail this boat now again is, 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 is really cool and, and I enjoy it a lot. Santi Langer, inspirational as always, and you'll be able to watch him and his crew, Cecilia Carranza Saroli, in action live from Yair in the south of France at the end of April in the next World Cup Series event. Right, time for another My Boat, our monthly feature in which top sailors tell us why they love their boat so much. Here's Mike Holt on the two-person high-performance dinghy that he's won three world championships in. It's the 505. My boat. Boats are quite tricky to sail fast. It's, it's a lot of strings in the boat, which means you've got to continually be thinking about how to make it go fast, keep moving stuff around, uh, and, and, and not move stuff around. You know, have a have a plan and try and execute your plan. So the racing is racing's tough. The difference in boat speed matters. So you've got to continually work to make the boat go fast. And I grew up sailing yachts, and that was kind of didn't really think much beyond yachts until one day a friend who ended up with a 505 gave me a shout and said hey you want to come sailing with me and to be honest I've never sailed anything better and I've sailed pretty much every boat on the water it's just the perfect blend of all the things you need in a boat great to sail uh, fun racing competitive it's fast it's it's physical and the people we go racing all around the world against the best people all around the world and the level of competition and the uh, camaraderie and uh, everything about it is just as good as it gets and the sailing's fun. And you can find out more about the 505 on the Sailing Uncovered Facebook page. So to our next guest, who's a passionate sailor, he's a news anchor for the BBC and author of a great book that I read recently called A Race Too Far. It's all about the legendary Golden Globe race that took place in 1968 and saw a band of, well, dreamers, mavericks, uh, yes, complete chances, uh, set sail to go round the world non-stop solo, something that had never been done before back then. Chris Eakin wrote the book back in 2009, but now, in 2018, 50 years on, it's become more relevant than ever because this, well, first of all, there's a film about it just come out with Colin Firth, and also this summer we'll see the race recreated. They're doing it again. And Chris started by telling me more on the background of the race. Well, it's the attempt to be the first person to sail around the world single-handed without stopping. Knox Johnston, this is when he did it, it's why he is famous. And there were nine men in it. But the big, big difference is this is not a race in the modern sense where everybody lines up on a start line. It was who can be the first person to achieve it. This is 1968 they started, so they're just after Francis Chichester, who crucially stopped in Australia. And everybody's saying, well, can somebody do it without stopping? And it became a big sort of Fleet Street battle. And this, I think this is really important for why it is such an interesting story now, because it was so chaotic. You know, there were individual sponsors. Knox Johnson, he was going to do it. And he had the Sunday Mirror sponsoring him, the Express, somebody else. And suddenly, Harold Evans, who was editor of the Sunday Times, really big, powerful paper at the time, if not so much now. And they just said, let's call it a big race. It's our race. And you just say you're going to go, and that's it. There are virtually no rules. Because we forget, don't we, that uh, newspapers were the, the, the Google and the Netflix and the Amazons of, of, of the times in, in the 1960s. Um, so they had the money, they had the power. Um, and I think the first part of the book 
um, goes, uh, does really well in describing that chaos, but also just how amateurish um, a lot of the sailors were. Well, you, you, you know, it wasn't quite, um, are you going to sail off the end of the earth? However, it, the, there was a genuine question. Could a man, and they were all men, could a man and a boat, both of them, could they actually achieve it? Because Chichester didn't just stop. I mean, he, he had a refit of the boat. He had a long break himself. You know, Knox Johnson was sent to a psychiatrist before and after to see what the impact was. I mean, it was pioneering stuff. It really was. Well, the impact uh, for everyone, but well, it changed Sir Robin Knox Johnson's life. He became, you know, he was knighted eventually and, and, and still is the doyen of uh, British sailing, um, having, having won the race. Um, but it changed everybody's life, everybody involved, for, not just the sailors, their wives, their children, and the effects are still being felt. And I think part of that is because of that chaos. I mean, some people, it's, a, it's a, a question as to whether it was irresponsible at the time. Now, Knox Johnston's view is, look, you know, some of them are going to go anyway, so the paper wasn't irresponsible, they just got involved. I, I think the question is a more interesting one. It's just what could happen at the time with no rules. That cannot happen now, and that's largely born out of the Golden Globe. Now you have page and page and pages of rules for good reason, they didn't have them and that led to complete chaos and it led to some people taking part who really probably shouldn't have been there. I mean the, the most um, famous one is Che Blythe who uh, had rowed across the Atlantic with John Ridgway couldn't sail a boat and yet he's one of the nine men and I mean he literally in order to start in the Solent which is a really stupid place to start a single-handed race because you've got to get out of the channel so there's a reason why Knox Johnson started in Falmouth uh, he had to follow a friend out because he just didn't know what to do I mean this is unbelievable he was the comedy turn of the book and then you have of course and I think you're probably hinting of it uh, the Donald Crowhurst story, who was a father of four, he was a town councillor for the Liberal Party, and the businessman uh, made a sailing gadget at boat shows, uh, and he, he was out of his depth in the end and got into real trouble, and his story is the most famous to come out of the race. You touched earlier on, on, on the film that's come out. Uh, Colin Firth plays the part of Donald Crowhurst, so presumably the film um, focuses on that. We haven't actually seen the film yet. Yeah, um, have. Yeah. Oh, have you? Yeah. Tell, tell us about it. Um, it's it, well, it, the film has nothing to do with me, it, unfortunately. <laughs> All my friends think I'm making a fortune. It's just the same story. Um, fortunately, Colin Firth was an absolute gentleman. I, I emailed him and said, look, I hear you're doing this film. I wrote a book. Would you like me to send you a copy? And he sent a lovely email back saying, I've actually read your book, and I've read it several times, and I nearly missed a train because I was so engrossed in it at King's Cross. And he gave me this lovely quote to put on the front of it. Absolute gentleman, real star. Uh, but he, he plays Crowhurst, Rachel Weiss plays Claire Crowhurst. Um, big budget film. I, I liked it. I was worried I'd be horrified by it. You know, there's inevitably some artistic license. There always is. I think it's a really difficult story to tell in film. You know, I worked in television for 25 years and pictures constrain you as well as helping you. Um, the, the one disadvantage of it is that it is just the Crowhurst story. It's impossible. I think it's impossible to do a feature film on the whole race. The problem is, if you don't understand the whole race, uh, it falls a little out of context. Nevertheless, it's still it's gripping, and Colin Firth, uh, I think, at his best as well. Um, so, Donald Crowhurst, um, the, the short story is that uh, he set off on a boat that probably wasn't right for that sort of uh, that sort of voyage. Um, 
probably didn't have enough knowledge to get around, um, but realised um, very early on in the race, um, well, you, you take it from there. Well, I would even question the, or certainly his family would question, that probably didn't have enough knowledge. I mean, he was dubbed as a sort of weekend sailor. He was like many people at the boat shows. Um, I think he could have. I mean, he sailed to, you know, the Falkland Islands. Uh, I think he could have got around. I think the real issue is his boat. His boat was not ready. It was a very chaotic start. And you still see it, you know, the Vendée Globe. You get some people in that who are not ready. It's been a ludicrous scramble. That is part of it. And that is the part in which he failed. There's no doubt about that. And then, of course, uh, and you're right, it's a terribly long story, but, but in essence, he, if he wasn't successful, he had the potential for losing his boat, who is sponsor-owned, which is sponsor-owned, uh, his business and his house. And he was very under pressure to succeed. He put, he put everything into it, basically. <laughs> he did, and he started exaggerating his progress. His agent started exaggerating the exaggerations. And before you know it, and we're talking really early in the race, weeks into the race, he is on a path of the ocean uh, that is different to where the public think he is, which means he can't even drop out with dignity. And so it all just grows arms and legs, and the pressure ends up getting to him uh, after many months of pretending he's going around when he's in the South Atlantic. Remember, mo I mean, a lot of them didn't even have radios. Nobody, of course, had GPS then. So you could do it then, you couldn't do it now, and that is what makes this, this whole story so special. There are episodes in the book where you describe how he's, he's trying to hide from passing ships and vessels so that no one spots him because uh, within the, the maritime world, people knew the race was on and were keeping an eye out for, for yachts and so on. Um, and in the end, um, the pressure got too much for him, or, or maybe it didn't. We don't really know what happened, but he never returned. We don't know what happened, but I think you're right, the pressure got, I think you can conclude the pressure got too much. And it's interesting because the Sunday Times, we were talking about their complete chaos before, um, they got a psychiatrist involved when they discovered what had happened, and they didn't discover until his empty boat was found. And the point is that Crowhurst wrote uh, a document he called The Philosophy in his logbooks, which he left on the boat for people to find, and it essentially was a unique charting of a mental breakdown. The psychiatrist said it was most unusual to have this whole thing pouring out on the page. So actually quite a lot is understood. Uh, the very final end, did he jump off the boat? I mean, I think, frankly, you know, I think it's fair to say he did. However, Claire Crowhurst, who I interview in the book, and then I interview Simon, the son as well, uh, you know, Claire is less sure, feels it could have been an accident. Uh, there's even a bit of tension within the family on, on that. That's, that's, uh, well, it's, they're a loving family, but there is tension on how to handle that, even all of these decades on. And, and you do go to great lengths to try and uncover that and to try and understand how the family feel, because you visited them, you visited Claire, his, his wife. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, I, it's not even just the Crowhurst. This is the other thing. There are another two families. Um, I mean, the first chapter is called Three Widows for a good reason. Now, one of those was Nigel Tetley, who, who had a disastrous end to the race and then a disastrous end to his life. And his widow was unable to talk about that, even to her best friends, for 40-odd years. Well, that, that one even shocked me when I turned the page. So we, we won't give it away. Um, but uh, that was an extraordinary end. Um, and then there was the Frenchman. Exactly. A um, man who kept racing. Well, Bernard <laughs> Maitesha is very interesting. You know, if you, if you talk... I have yet to meet a French sailor who does not think that Bernard Moitessier would have won this and beaten Robin Knox Johnston if he hadn't decided at Cape Horn to carry on instead of turning left, to save his soul. He didn't, uh, I've forgotten his quote, sucking his marrow and all this, the whole media circus waiting uh, on the 
south coast of England, and he was rejecting all of that. He was rejecting it in a very Bernard Montessier French way, and that you know he still wrote a book about it and, and did go for publicity in his own way. Uh, but his widow has, who again I, I found in the south of France and went over to interview her. You know she's in her flat in the suburbs of Paris, and the gendarmes knock on the door and say your husband has just announced to the world. Remember he had no radio. He fi he fired this message to the bridge of a passing ship off Cape Town. Uh, he's, he's abandoned the race, he's carrying on sailing, in effect saying he's abandoned you as well. And they were public figures in France. Uh, because the French are so much more into their sailors. And she's, you know, they're on eight pages or whatever it was on Paris match, and she has to, you know, brazen this out. And I just found it fascinating talking to her because eventually she admitted, yes, it was humiliating uh, and, a, and a colossal embarrassment for her. Yeah, I think, I think probably the thing that comes out most from the book is how this race, which was supposed to be a glorious celebration of, of, of um, endeavour and of sailing and of sport, um, effectively destroyed the lives of everyone involved and everyone, you know, and their families and their, their wives and, uh, and so on. Um, so the race goes again for the first time yes. in 50 years, in 2018. Um, they're trying to recreate the same sorts of conditions, but... Um, slightly more professionally. <laughs> yeah, uh, by the way, less of the everyone. Knox Johnson picked me up. He didn't even like the title, A Race Too Far. He grumbled, it's not too far for me, was it? Um, but it, although he did like it, <laughs> he, he was a gentleman on it. Um, yes, it is being recreated, and I think it's fascinating. I have to say, frankly, when I heard about it, I thought, what a daft idea and all of this. You can't even have digital music on board. It has to be analog tape. And I thought, for goodness sake, however, you know, it has captured people's imaginations. It has really taken off. So who am I or anybody else to question, you know, the idea they've come up with? Um, it's, and I was talking to Susie Goodall at the London Boat Show, who's the only woman in it. Uh, and her, her father bought nine copies of A Race Too Far for the whole family, incidentally. And they said, you must not read this before you go. She said, I've already read it. <laughs> uh, but it will be very interesting to see how they were. I think well over 20 boats look like they'll be in it. Um, all a similar type of boat, you know, maximums 36 feet. Uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see how they all cope, in particular with the Southern Ocean. But it's different, a bit different. I mean, they've got satellite phones for safety reasons, and they will communicate with the media. Of course, very little of that happened in 68, 69. Um, finally, where, where do we get the book? Oh, any, any good bookshop online, uh, you know, anywhere you like. It's uh, yeah, easily, easily got. And it's in paperback now, which makes it a lot cheaper, which is good. Or alternatively, go to the Sailing Uncovered Facebook page where you'll find a link to buying the book. And by the way, there's all sorts of sailing stuff on that page. Great photos, videos, news. And if you enjoy it, it'd be really great if you'd share it with your sailing buddies. We'd really appreciate that. And so we're done for another episode. Next month, we catch up with one of the world's top round-the-world sailors. Sam Davis will fill us in on her plans for global domination sailing the next Vendée Globe anyway. And uh, we'll hear about an amazing project that gets blind people sailing. It's really a truly inspirational story. So make sure you subscribe or follow the podcast so you get it automatically every month. Thanks for listening. Fair winds, everyone.